welcome to the JNMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten. I'm the JNMP podcast editor, and I'm joined today to discuss this month's patient's choice by Associate Professor Thomas Kalinchik from the Clinical Outcomes Research Unit, Department of Medicine at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Thomas and I are going to be talking about multiple sclerosis, or MS, which is one of the most common acquired chronic neurological conditions affecting young adults. Specifically, Thomas is going to be talking to me about the standard treatments for MS called aminotherapies and what we know about the effects of these medications on patient relapse and disability. So Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Hi Elizabeth, thank you for having me on the podcast today. Would you be able to walk me through what are oral immunotherapies and how are they used in MS? So multiple sclerosis, as you have correctly stated, Elizabeth, is an autoimmune condition. And from that, it follows that to prevent the multiple sclerosis from damaging people's brains and spinal cords, the place on which or the spot on which we need to act is the immune system. So the medication that we currently use for chronic treatment of multiple sclerosis is called immunotherapies, therapies that modulate the effect or the way the immune system works. There are several generations and several types of these therapies, and the oldest generation is so-called injectable immunotherapies, which tells us about the administration route for these therapies. These are injections, patient administered to themselves, and there are two substances in that category, interferon beta and glatramer acetate. About eight years ago, there was first therapies in the, in the new category that started emerging, so-called oral immunotherapies. And as the name suggests, the main advantage, one of the main advantages of these therapies is that patients no longer need to carry injections around and inject themselves on a regular basis, but these therapies are administered orally. Another important factor to consider with these therapies is that they use different mechanisms of action to the more old-fashioned injectable therapies. And from that, it follows that these therapies also tend to be more potent than the injectable therapies. In Australia, we are lucky. We are able to use any therapies, any immunotherapies, regardless of uh, which tier of treatment they belong to at any stage of the disease, including a first-line choice. Patients treated in Europe, depending on the country, often have to start with injectable therapies and only when they show reactivation of the disease, they are allowed to switch to oral therapies. Whether in Australia or in the European circumstances, it is still an important question to be answered, which of the therapies is the best therapy at a given time for a given patient. At the present time, we have data from pivotal clinical trials which use placebo as a comparator arm, but there were no randomized clinical trials that would have compared oral therapies head to head. So this has remained an unresolved question. So it sounds like we understand that the oral immunotherapies might be slightly more potent than the traditional injectable ones. And there have been a few trials indicating the efficacy of these immunotherapies. Um, is that compared to the more traditional ones or in and amongst themselves in terms of the different types of oral immunotherapies? Yeah, typically, the previous trials have compared uh, the oral therapies to placebo not to other therapies, including injectable therapies. That type of comparison has not been done satisfactorily. And most importantly, 
the oral therapies have not been compared amongst themselves. So it is, it is difficult for a clinician to judge objectively whether the treatment that they're prescribing for their patient is superior to one of the two other oral therapies. Which of course brings us on to your paper published in the JNMP, which looked at the efficacy of these oral immunotherapies. I wondered if you could talk us a bit through that and particularly, you know, importantly, what did you find? So this was a study that we have designed and run with the help of observational, large observational data set. The data set is called MSBase and it is a large international collaborative project that has been running for 17 years now with involvement of 134 centers in 34 countries and information from about six over than more than 62,000 patients globally. We have used the power of this data set to identify those patients who were exposed to one of the three oral immunotherapies, the therapies being fingolimod, dimethylfumarate and teriflunamide, in various clinical situations, whether they were treated as uh, with therapies as a first-line treatment or they were switching to therapies, uh, these therapies from other therapies either due to treatment failure or intolerance of the previous medication. We have used statistical methodology which is necessary in these situations when we're working with non-randomized information, information that is collected in real life. And the reason is that uh, as clinicians we of course like to treat for a reason and uh, we treat the patients with the best intention to suppress the activity of the disease as much as we can. Therefore there is so-called indication bias in any observational data set. The statistical methodology that I'm referring to helps remove or minimize the impact of such indication bias and also several other biases that are present in observational data. The methodology is called propensity score matching and uses um, a way to match people on different treatments to their counterparts based on the recorded information at the time where they started their respective therapies. So in a sense, this approach allows us to simulate a pseudo-randomized trial and after a matching of uh, patients in different groups, observe how these patients fed over time, depending on which of the treatments they, they were started. In this study, we have observed that all three therapies, teriflonamide, dimethylfumarate, and fingolimod, were associated with a very good control of disease activity, and by disease activity, I mean the frequency of multiple sclerosis relapses, uh, the risk of progression of disability, and chance of disability improvement. While the control in all treatments was very good, we have still observed some small differences between some of the preparations. Overall, in the full cohort that we analyzed, we saw that fingolimod was more effective in reducing the frequency of relapses than the other two counterparts, teriflonamide and dimethylfumarate. And also, people on fingolimod were more likely to remain treated to stay longer on this therapy than people exposed to the other two therapies. In terms of the disability outcomes, we, we did not find statistically significant differences, neither in the risk of disability progression or the chance of disability improvement, which is probably partially determined by the limited duration of the follow-up, where the median follow-up in this study was about 2.5 years from start of treatment. 
So in summary, we can say that while all three therapies in general are highly effective, fingolimod tends to be slightly more potent in suppressing MS relapses than teriflunomide and dimethylfumarate. Of course, these findings have sort of key implications for patients and also prescribing clinicians um, in terms of, you know, choice of MS therapy. So I wondered what your thoughts were on what factors need to be considered into making that sort of choice about what therapies to use. Um, it sounds like what you discussed previously, that of course, where you are in the world will also have an impact on what is used as a first line treatment for you. But are there other factors that you would recommend that patients and, and clinicians consider? This is a very important point, Elizabeth. The, um, the nature of the disease and also who the patient is and where they stand and the cause of their disease is a very important a determinant of the, the outcomes of their disease. We have the, learned this through multiple previous studies and there were several other publications that came out recently they have compared some of the combinations of the therapies that we have studied. The, when we analyze all this signal and these results together, a pattern starts to emerge, which suggests that patients with no prior exposure to immunotherapy tend to benefit more from dimethylfumarate than teriflonamide. But on the other hand, studies that compared cohorts who were mostly switching from other immunotherapies did not find differences in effectiveness between the two agents. One study, which is our study, suggested that when a patient is switched from another immunotherapy, escalation to fingolimod may be a preferable strategy over switching to dimethylfumarate or teriflonamide. So in other words, the situation in which person is switching treatment or starting treatment as a first-line therapy matters, and where in first-line treatment, dimethylfumarate may be superior to teriflonamide. In people who have previously failed on other therapies, there is probably reason not to escalate half-step from their previous immunotherapy to dimethylfumarate, but go straight for fingolimod or even more potent therapies. This whole discourse concerns treatment effectiveness. And of course, there is a whole area or areas that influence treatment decisions and one of them is safety and tolerability and in this uh, one of the limitations of our present study is that we have not compared the safety of these therapies because MSBase doesn't collect this information systematically at the present time. The other important factor is a patient convenience and also things such as pregnancy and family planning and so forth. So the the, the results that we have presented represents a part of the clinical reasoning, very important for the clinicians to interpret this result in the context of the other areas that are important for treatment decision making. Absolutely. So despite some very clear findings outlined in your JNMP paper, of course, as per many medical decisions, it is requiring a personalised approach and to consider the individual factors of the patient in front of the clinician. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and speaking to me about your work. Thank you, Elizabeth. So that was Associate Professor Thomas Kalinchik from the Clinical Outcomes Research Unit from the University of Melbourne in Australia. We were discussing multiple sclerosis and the use of oral immunotherapies and what these effects may have on patient relapse and disability. You can, of course, download this paper for free on jnmp.bmj.com. And we thank you all for listening.